This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. This is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spiritualist Podcast on the Be Here Now Network. My guest today is Gabor Mate. Did I say it right, Gabor? Gabor. Gabor, I'm sorry. <laughs> we were having this conversation before we started, and I said how embarrassed I am because I am a big fan of his work for many years, and sometimes I'm just bad with names. Uh, but Gabor is a best-selling author of In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. He is a physician a highly sought after speaker. Um, it's just a, a very wonderful, wonderful man in general. I'll have his full bio for anyone who's interested on, on the webpage and links to his website as well. So let's just jump right into this. Gabor, thank you very much for being with us today. Nice to meet you. You as well. Thank you. So there's a lot of ground we're going to cover today. Uh, it's going to be in relation to addiction and I wanted to start right um, in the beginning I've heard you say that addictions are not the problem addictions are the person's attempt to solve a problem in their life and uh, and I, I deeply appreciate that so I was hoping if you don't mind could you explain what specifically addiction is and then second how people do use them in attempt to solve their various life problems well if I can begin with a question sure uh, you know, you, you've, you're very open about your own addictive history. Yes. Uh, I'm not going to ask you at this point the details of it. Just simply, what did you get from it? So let me define an addiction for you. Is any behavior, any behavior, substance-related or not, that a person craves, finds temporary pleasure or relief in, suffers negative consequences as a result of, but can't give it up despite the negative consequences. So craving pleasure, relief, negative consequence, Inability to give it up. So, I'm not going to ask you at this point the history, but just what did it give you? What did you like about it temporarily? Absolutely. I mean, all of the above for myself, but the big one was relief. Relief uh, from? Relief from um, self-loathing, uh, relief from depression, relief from dissatisfaction in the world. Um, I would say those were the that was the major component of it. Okay, so can we then maybe summarize it to say that you wanted relief from emotional pain? Yes, very well said, of course. Now, who doesn't want relief from emotional pain? I, I don't think there's anyone that does not want that. It's what you were after was a perfectly normal human aspiration. Mm. Your problem was the emotional pain. And 
the addiction came along as an attempted solution. So addiction is never the primary problem. It creates problems, of course. That's why we talk about it so much. But it's not the primary problem. The primary problem is why are we in such emotional pain? And what happened? So something happened. And that's something that happened. Hasn't got much to do with your genes. Hasn't got much to do with you being stupid or making wrong choices. It has to do with the fact that you suffered at a time in your life when you couldn't avoid the suffering, and that means childhood. In other words, addiction doesn't matter what form it takes, whether it's to sex or gambling or to drugs or to alcohol or to shopping or to eating. It's always an attempt, in one way or another, to compensate for it, to escape from intense suffering in childhood. When I say intense suffering, I don't necessarily mean terrible things happening, but the child does suffer and ends up having more pain than he or she can handle, hence the escape into addiction. So, in other words, the addiction is an attempt to solve a problem. Mm. And so that's another aspect that I wanted to talk to you about is is the childhood uh, element of addiction. A lot of people, when I did a counseling, substance abuse counseling internship, many of the clients I worked with came in and a vast majority of them had some sincere traumatic experiences in their life. Now, you just mentioned that it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, a, a big event because I look back at my own life and I, you know, am a hardcore addict, like to the bone when I was using and my several years of relapse full on. But I look at my childhood and relatively in comparison, it was not bad. I, I love, I have a good, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Let me stop you right there. Yeah, sure. Because that kind of thinking is precisely what prevents people from understanding their own life experience. Okay. So let me just look at, let's say, let's just look at your life if you're willing to do that. I absolutely am willing to do that, yes. Okay, great. So tell me one thing that didn't work for you in childhood that made you unhappy. Never mind comparison to anybody else, just you. Hmm. Um, do you know or do you not know? Yeah, I, I, the first memory that's coming up for me is more teenage years, but not childhood. Um, All right, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Were you bullied as a child? I was not bullied, no. Okay. Either of your parents drank at all? Nope. Did they hit each other? Did not hit each other. They yell at each other? They didn't yell, but they definitely fought. Um, not a lot, but they did. Was either them depressed or anxious? Um, not that I was aware of. No, I'm not asking whether you were aware as a child. I'm asking in retrospect. No, and and no, honestly, in retrospect, I I don't think so. Okay, so you really just cannot identify anything. Nobody ever well, sexually nobody ever sexually abused you. No. Luckily, I, I did not have sexual abuse. What I can say, what I do know from my own explorations, I know my yeah. parents were very young when they got married. Um, I was the firstborn, so there was a big learning curve. So I'm sure that that impacted me growing up. When you say learning curve, what do you mean? Um, what I mean is, so the, the first-time parents, they were 21 when they had me, um, newly married, so my brother, I have one sibling, two years younger, you know, so by the time he was born, they had a bit, at least a little experience. Um, 
Okay, but you're not really talking about your experience. Like, it sounds like you have a hard time tapping into your own experience. Which I probably do. You're right. I was just trying to share what you were asking me about my my parents, and I was just trying to give you something. Um, the only other thing I know is my dad was raised in foster care without his own father, or okay. without a father. So I know that was tough for him as well. Okay. It, so do you remember spending time with your father as a child? Yes. Um, both my parents. Uh, yes, I did spend time with them. Were you ever sad or unhappy as a child, as far as you can recall? Uh, yeah, I, I remember being sad. I mean, not what I would consider more than any other child, but I had periods of sadness. There you go, comparing again. <laughs> now, uh, when were you, when, can you remember a period of sadness? How old, how old can you go back to? Um... Mm. I think I have a lot of work to do here. <laughs> I, 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 uh, do you ever recollect being sad? I don't care at what age, teenagehood, uh, before preteen, any time. Let's be, let's be honest. Sure. Well, the teenage is very easy for me because that's, you know, where I started to really change a lot. But yes, preteen. So as a teenager? Yes. Yeah. Who would you speak to about it? Uh, I wouldn't really. Um, you didn't talk to anybody. No, that's the thing. Not definitely not my parents. Not really. Okay. Maybe right. maybe some friends. But. Do you have children yet, Chris? Uh, I have a stepdaughter. Okay, if your stepdaughter is sad, who would you want her to speak to? She generally speaks with her mother, but she will. Who do you? Who would you want her to speak to? You oh, want to speak. Yeah, you'd want her to speak to her mother or maybe to yourself, right? Oh, I would love for her to, yes. That's what you would want, is to speak to the parents, right? Yes, yes. yes. Oh, if your stepdaughter was sad and she didn't talk to either of her parents, neither you nor her mother, how would you understand that? Right, you wouldn't. I wouldn't. No, well, how, as a parent, how would you explain it? It happened. She's not talking to you. What happened? There's some kind of disconnect, maybe a trust uh, okay. Maybe comfort. How does it feel for a child not to be connected to the parents? Um, wow, not good. When that's how it doesn't feel. How does it feel? How does it feel? Uh, lonely, scary. Okay, you just told me about your childhood. Hmm. By the time you were a teenager, you learned that your parents weren't available for you. And you learned that much before then, as a matter of fact. Now, here's my question to you. Yeah. If a six-year-old or a five-year-old, such as you were, says, when I'm sad and lonely, I got nobody to talk to, would you say to them, oh, come on, it's not so bad. Think of the kids who are being beaten or sexually abused or starved. Is that what you would say to a five or six-year-old? No. No. But that's what you're saying to yourself. When you say that, not like, not like others, it's not so bad, you're simply dismissing your own experience, which is a disconnection from yourself. Disconnection, in other words, how you survived your childhood, Chris, is, you, is you're disconnected from yourself, which is the very meaning of trauma, as defined by Peter Levine, who you just talked to, my colleague Peter Levine, a trauma expert. So listen, that's what happens in traumas is a disconnect. 
And as soon as you start comparing your own experience with that of anybody else, and as soon as you say it wasn't as bad, that's a sign of the disconnect. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem you're trying to solve through your addiction. It's all the pain that you had, that you had nobody to talk to. So, understanding that, because I, you know, in the last couple of years, I have become much more familiar with your work and Peter's, who you mentioned, and finally starting to explore the trauma, though I'm seeing now that I have a, a long ways to go with it still. How do we begin to reintegrate these parts of disconnect that we have? What, um, what can we do to start healing those areas? Outside, I mean, I know there's the traditional way of the fellowships and there's those aspects to recovery and whatnot, but I'm talking about the traumatic disowned well, the, material. Well, the problem with many of the addiction treatment programs and include the 12-step programs in this is that for all the value that they offer, which is tremendous, they don't talk about this part. Right. They just don't talk about it. I mean, it may come up or it may not come up, but there's nothing structurally present in the 12-step movement that allows people to deal with their trauma. So that it's all substance, it's, it's just all behavior related and, 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 and substance related. But that reconnection, that reintegration, that's the missing piece all across the board. And, uh, and unfortunately, addiction programs and medical education and addiction counseling programs, for the most part, leave out the trauma bit. And even when they focus on the trauma, it's only on the overt trauma, the extreme ones, but not the actual experience of a sensitive child who's just in emotional pain. Right. So how do we integrate it? Well, first you've got to recognize that it's there. I mean, before you can heal this connection, you have to recognize that there's a, that there's a disconnection um, before you can... Um, integrate childhood pain, you have to recognize that this childhood pain is not very hard because it shows up every day in people's lives. They just don't see that it's showing up. I mean, the last time, I'm assuming that you and your partner, uh, just like me and my wife, have sometimes painful emotional interactions. Well, that's nothing but your childhood pain showing up. That's one or both of you not being an adult, but you're being a child at that moment. Mm -hmm. And it's that unintegrated, child, unintegrated childhood pain that's coming up. So it's easy to recognize because it hits you in the face every day if you see it for what it is. So you've got to start with the recognition. In other words, we have to be much more trauma-informed and much more aware of the origin and the manifestations of trauma. And then the addiction, of course, then shows up as I said earlier, is your desperate attempt to soothe the pain. So, in becoming more aware of this, the dissociated material, do we begin, besides just being aware of, on a daily basis of what's happening or the way it, it, it might be manifesting in our relationships, uh, is talk therapy uh something you'd recommend or because i know some of what i've learned about trauma is you know it's held deep within our body within our tissues and there's a, a body you know connection there as well so it sounds like you're saying the first step is let's become familiar with it 
and then you know from there start possibly working with the body material um you know there's no distinction between working mind and working with the body first of all mind and body can't be separated sure uh, secondly um when you say talk therapy well you know it depends who's talking to who you know uh you could see one person and talk with them for an hour and you can see another one could be a deeply enriching uh, insightful experience the other could be a total waste of time and they're both called talk therapy so sure. in other words yeah the talking is important but it depends who's talking with who and under what conditions the talking is if it if it involves ideas only it's never enough but so it has to be brought into the body level because it it, it is on the body i mean Bessel van der Kolk's great book, The Body Keeps the Score, um, or my book on physical illness, When the Body Says No, or Babette Rothschild's book, The Body Remembers. You know, it is in the body. And so at some point, the attention has to be brought into the body. Uh, so there's many ways of working, many ways of working both with mind and body, but it has to be a unity. Mm. Mm. It has to be unity, and uh, trauma has got its psychological aspects, it's got its physiological aspects, you can't separate the two. So for someone who's listening to this conversation, and this is new for them, you know, maybe they're, they're deeply rooted in the 12-step fellowships, which, like you said, don't cover this, this end of the material for the most part, and they're hearing this for the first time, what would you recommend they do in order to take that unitive step forward, you know, bringing mind and body in relation to uncovering and beginning to work with this trauma, release this trauma? First of all, if they're hearing this for the first time, my recommendation is not that they run off and do anything, okay, but that they really understand this. Okay, they do. They do what they need to do to understand what we're talking about. I mean, really, and and not just to understand it intellectually, but understand it in relationship to their own lives. Mm-hmm. Hence, my first suggestion is anybody who's new to hearing this is that they check out the some of the resources and literature on the subject. And I dare say. For addicts, a good place to begin is my book, In the Realm of Hunger Ghosts, Post-Inclusive Addiction. But it's not the only one. They should also check out the work of Peter Levine, particularly his work, uh, Waking the Tiger, or his most recent work, which is a bit more complicated. Waking the Tiger is probably an easier read, but Unspoken Voice, in an Unspoken Voice, is is a more um, learned exploration of the subject on trauma. They check out the videos and, and books of Bessel van der Kolk, including um, When the Body Keeps the Score, his most recent work on trauma. In other words, they really get to understand it. Sure. Sure. Uh, no, if they understood it and they've recognized it, how it shows up in their lives, then you move forward. And then you decide what works for you. If you have a therapist you can talk to, great. If you have a peer counselor you can talk with, great. If you uh, can join a meditation group so that you can get more mindfulness of what's happening with you at any given moment, I'm not talking about meditation to feel serene or to escape, but actually meditation to make you more aware of what's happening inside you. 
if you can do body work, somatic experiencing, yoga, mm -hmm. um, EMDR, which is a form of working with unresolved and sometimes unrecognized trauma. Uh, there's a whole range of techniques and modalities. Uh, some people may wish to engage in work with psychedelic uh, modalities. There's a lot of work these days on MDMA, the research on MDMA and, and post-traumatic stress disorder, um, so on and so forth. In other words, there are many modalities out there, but it's got to begin with the recognition that, yeah, you know what, I'm traumatized. That traumatization results in a disconnection from myself and all kinds of emotional pain that I don't know what to do with. That trauma is not my fault. It's also not my parents' fault. Like your parents, they did their best. Right. But right. their best was conditioned by what they received in childhood. So ultimately, it's not about uh, blaming anybody or saying it's the fault of anybody. You know what? We're not interested in blaming, but if we want to heal, we have to recognize what happened mm -hmm. and recognize how what happened affects us today. And then, right. then you know, then you can integrate, then you can heal. Great. Thank you. And you mentioned psychedelics, and I've seen a, a video in which you talk about ayahuasca, and I know you've spoken about psychedelics quite a bit. Uh, and I'm very fascinated by that. You know, most, not most, a lot of my work is deeply rooted with uh, the Love Server Member Foundation, which is Ram Dass's group, and obviously they're no stranger to psychedelics, so I'm often in conversation with them. And I did psychedelics uh like it was going out of style in my younger years i never did it in a conscious context i never did it for any sort of realization to me it was just having fun um actually actually it was an escape for you uh, sure yes yes it was um and so you know in these recent years we've been seeing these or at least for me i've become aware of these studies around psychedelics and the potential benefit that they can have um for those in in uh, recovery or struggling with addiction and i remember i spoke with tommy our mutual friend a while back and he was pretty he 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 didn't like the idea you know he said i can see if you're very early but if you have any recovery you don't need it you know obviously that's summarizing it um I think Tommy could get a lot out of a good ayahuasca ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't mind telling him so. Uh, look, I understand where Tommy's coming from and where other people are coming from. They're saying, look, my brain was addicted to substances. And now you're telling me to do a substance so I can heal further? What are you talking about? So, first of all, let me say that. Psychedelics are not for everybody. They're probably not even for most people. I mean, just because most people are not going to find the right context and guidance to do it. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I want to advocate is that people start taking psychedelics as a form of self-treatment. That's not the way to go. Furthermore, I totally understand the argument that, look, I was substance addicted. No, I don't want to do another substance to change my consciousness. Okay, then don't. That's fine. But here's the reality that it it's all has to do with context and guidance and intention. Now you, when you were younger and you were doing psychedelics like they were going out of style, 
you had no guidance right. and your intention, you had no context and your intention was to escape. It's very different when you do something in a traditional context where there's a real culture behind it, where there's clear intention, not of escape, but of realization, and where there's a compassionate and uh, experienced guidance to see through the different difficulties and um, oh, surprises that may show up. Now, psychedelic simply means mind manifesting, psyche the mind, psychedelic uh, mind manifesting. There are, our minds are very deep, they're multi-layered, there's a lot of unconscious material. The psychedelics just help you get to it. That's all. No, um, the form, the experience varies from person to person, but theoretically, what's wrong with getting access what you're deeply holding in your mind. Who would possibly lose anything by it unless they had no way to handle it? And that's why I'm uh, saying that context and guidance is everything. So if Tommy wants to argue that there's nothing f more for him to discover but his own deep mind, well, I'm very happy for him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by the way, psychedelics are not the only way to get there. They're not. They just happen to provide, in the right hands, a very quick way to get there, a very efficient way to get there. But again, they're not a requirement. Right. And ultimately, I never talk anybody into that kind of thing. It's just you either call to it or you're not called to it. In terms of addiction, though, uh, we've seen ex extremely good results. Uh, with, for example, mushrooms in the treatment of nicotine addiction. Mm -hmm. Results like you don't see anywhere else. Uh, MDMA in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder, ayahuasca in all kinds of addictions. I mean, I've, I've, I've seen that personally. Um, Ibogaine, which is another substance, in the treatment of opiate addiction. The, you know, these are not arguable. I mean, they're, they're not disputable, I mean. Right. Not that they are panaceas again, but the results are considerably better than what you usually get with the normally available treatment. So why not research them? Why not look into them? Uh, and again, nobody should be talked into it or forced into it. Right. Right. So I, I know a community of people um, that I'm friends with, and they have been doing uh, ayahuasca uh, journeys for several years now under a shamanic guidance and I can say from firsthand one person I know specifically I saw he was one of the most depressed people yeah. I, I knew and over the course of a year they, they do it four times a year once each season and over the course of his first year it was I mean I've never seen such a profound change in a person uh, it was incredible my fear, um, because they've often invited me and being in recovery, my fear was that, and this leads me to something I would ask you about was, and I'm sure this is my own misunderstanding, but the pleasure center in our brains, I was always scared that, you know, alcohol was my number one drug, but I, I was the kind of person I would take any drug just to escape, like we've been talking about. And a number of my relapses didn't happen with alcohol. It was pills or, or marijuana, whatever. So my fear was always that, 
understanding that ayahuasca certainly is not a, a substance you abuse. Um, however, I had that fear that it might affect the pleasure center in my brain and make me want to go back out. Can you explain that? Okay, I understand. Uh, look, first of all, let's understand something. Yeah. Uh, as I point out in, in my talks and in my book, the, the pleasure center, the reward centers, the incentive centers, the motivation centers, the stress regulation centers, the the impulse regulation circuits in the brain, these are physiological entities. They are not functional in people who are addicted. And they are dysfunctional because the brain develops an interaction with the childhood environment. And when the child environment does not provide the mutual responsiveness, the kind of attuned holding that the child needs, these circuits will physiologically not develop properly. Mm. And therefore, when the addiction comes along and it motivates you and it gives you pleasure, those centers are just, oh boy, I know I got what I want. So I understand your fear. However, the last thing you'd say about an ayahuasca experience is that it's pleasurable. Mm. First of all, it tastes awful. Secondly, it makes you puke very often. I, that's not a bad thing. It's a purging of what you need to purge. But pleasure is not any word that you ever ascribe to an ayahuasca experience. And we also know from large-scale studies, I mean, the plant is legal in some countries. And where it's been legal and studied in hundreds and thousands of people, the risk of addiction goes down. The risk of depression goes down. The risk of mental illness goes down in this population. Um, I've done ayahuasca and I, I work with it. I don't crave the experience. I don't look forward to it at all. I shudder at it because I, I the taste, you know, and then sometimes the nausea. But it's not what it's about. It's about am I going to learn something deeply important about myself? Yes, probably I will. So don't worry about the pleasure. Sure. sure. And, uh, I mean, do it or don't do it, but don't do it. Don't not do it for the wrong reasons. You know. Right. Don't do it because you don't feel like doing it. That's a good reason not to do it. Don't do it because you have some fear and you're not ready. That's a good reason not to do it. Mm -hmm. but don't do it because you think that it's going to somehow activate your pleasure center. That's not a good reason not to do it. It's just not, it's just not the way it is. Yeah, that's been my main, I think, deterring factor is that fear. Um, so maybe something I'll revisit because I have read up quite a bit on it, uh, yeah. studied a lot and seen, yes, like you've said, the, the, the amount of incredible benefits from these studies that have been done. They seem overwhelmingly positive and I've not heard any anyone come back and say oh man it was such a great time like you said it's you know it's it's a besides the the vomiting and purging there's the whole psychological experience and um, I know it's it's been very tough for a lot of people however after they come out of it you know they they of course feel it was entirely worth it so um, something yeah. to, to, to re Reconsider. Thank you for talking about that. And and you did mention a little bit about the brain and its development. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that in regards to addiction. And, and you know, be, so my wife and I are very different. She never had uh, an issue with with addiction. Um, with drink, you know, she was the kind of person where she can have. Sure, uh, she did. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so well, well uh, here's. It'd be interesting if if she was here because here I would I would say to her again. Here's the definition of addiction. Uh, right. Any behavior, substance-related or not, yeah. 
You're right. You're right. That a person craves, finds pleasure, temporary relief in, but continues despite negative consequences. Would she really say she's never had an addiction in her life? No. And that, and you're absolutely right. So let me, let me rephrase that then. So something I will notice that happens is, and it's not just with her, but actually she doesn't drink at all, but she's the kind of person where she used to drink wine, let's say, and she would have some left and and that was fine. Like when I'm out out at a restaurant and I see someone leave a little beer or wine, it's like, what are you doing? How can you do that? She can stop eating like any kind of sugary food with some left, whereas I can't, I need to consume, you know, go, go, go. So maybe that's more of what I'm talking about. What's, what's going on with the brain and, and, well, what's going on with the brain is that <clears throat> owing to your early circumstances and maybe some degree of genetic sensitivity on your part, these pleasure reward centers never developed adequately. They're, they, they are unsatisfied. The impulse regulation part that says, I'd like a bit more chocolate cake, but I've already had two pieces and that's enough for me. That's impulse regulation. You have the impulse to have a third one, but the regulation says, no, enough. That part of your brain didn't develop properly. Again, because of circumstances. And on the other hand, um, giving yourself pleasure that way brings tremendous activation of your incentive circuitry. So, I want it. I got to have it right now. So yes, it's a, it's a setup, you know. Now you can overcome that. You can heal that, but that takes time. Now you've given up the behavior, but you haven't completely completed the. Let me put it this way: uh, there's there's a difference between abstinence and sobriety. Abstinence is not using something. Sobriety is not even having the, imp- the impulse to use or, or not having more than a mild impulse, which is easily dealt with. That's what sobriety is, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, sobriety has got degrees to it. So yeah, I know that I have ways to go yet in becoming completely sober. I don't use substances, never have. I've had addictive behaviors, but, but not to substances. Uh, my addictive patterns have not totally disappeared. But I do have much more regulation over them now, you know. And um, at some point, at some point, so will you. Yeah, you already do more than you ever did before. Right. Right. But it, but it's but it's it's ongoing work and it's ongoing. The good thing about the brain is that it does develop new circuits even later on in life, and those new circuits can override the old ones. And that's the work. That's and that's promising, because um, I you know I know you talk about the music addiction you had, or to buying albums, classical music. That's an important distinction. Yeah. It's not that I was addicted to music, right? It was that's not a, that's, that's just a love of music, which right. I have. Right. The purchasing is what I was addicted to. Right. You know, it's it's, it's having to get one thing and then. Immediately, I can go back to the store to get a bunch more, and yeah. and as soon as I get home, I'm already thinking about the CDs I didn't buy and how I go back next day and buy it. And now the the, the preoccupation with the acquisition, preoccupation, preoccupation <clears throat> that would take me away from being emotionally present for my children or my spouse. Mm. 
that would have me lie about it, spend much more money than was reasonable. <clears throat> That's the addiction. Right. Not, not to the music. Right. Right. And, 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 that, and that had to do with not feeling alive enough in my life, a kind of a deadness. That deadness had to do with childhood. The way I survived my childhood trauma <clears throat> was to suppress my feelings. When you suppress your feelings, life feels empty and purposeless and kind of boring. Now, if I got something to excite me and, and, and to live for and, and outside of me, that more and more and more, well, now it's, it's really worth getting up in the morning. So the, my incentive motivation centers of my brain were highly activated by the idea of uh, purchasing music. And for some people, they'll be activated by the thought of sex, compulsive sex, uh, shopping, eating, or drugs. Right. Yeah, yeah food is one I, I recognize still comes up for me. And it's interesting because I do my best to eat well but let's say there's a day where I allow myself to have a little treat at that point. It's like, well, you had one just like that, the addictive thinking and all bets are off for the rest of the day. The nice thing is usually the next day I can stop myself. Whereas if it's alcohol, there's no way I'm going to be able to stop. It's just, I'm off on a run at that point, but I, I still see it manifest in so many different ways. So, yeah. well, and, the, and the other point I want to say about the brain is that <clears throat> although we make, distinctions here's this somebody is an alcoholic somebody's a heroin addict somebody else is a shopaholic somebody else is a gambler actually it's all the same right in other words the same brain circuits are involved in all addictions so the physiologically it's the same brain circuits um psychologically it's the same emotional pain and emptiness spiritually it's the same disconnection Physiologically, it's the same discomfort in the body. Historically, it's some variation of the same trauma. In other words, <clears throat> there's a universal addiction process, which is um, characteristic of every addicted human being on the planet. So to, 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 to think that there's, all, there's one kind of addiction here, one kind, yeah, that's true in terms of the target behavior. But it's not true in terms of the underlying dynamics. So, for someone, and I, I don't know if this plays into it or not, but speaking about relapse, um, someone who has... So, I mean, I know there's obviously the difference between being sober and recovering... But let's say someone has been sober for 15, 20 years. You know, we, I see it happen. What, to? Abstinent, you mean. Abstinent. Okay, sorry, abstinent. Yeah. Um, and maybe not even just with drugs or alcohol, but someone who had some kind of, you know, again, I know that's it's the yeah. substance, but they have some kind of self-defeating behavior and they've yeah. been away from it for a, a stretch, a good period of time. They have a, a meditation practice, yoga, whatever the case may be. They've been doing things to improve their lives. Yeah. Yet, maybe a year, several years down the road, they come back to that behavior again. Yeah. What What is happening there? Well, let me ask you. Yeah. Uh, so have you had such times in your life? Absolutely, yes. 
Okay, so if you can look at at the time of the relapse, what was going on in your life? Sure. Just just before the relapse, what would you say? The last relapse I had, um, I was very sick with bronchitis for about a month. I hadn't been sleeping more than about three hours a night. In other words, stress. A lot of stress. And that's just one of, yes, it was it was one of those perfect storms of, yes, a lot of stress. Okay, so here's the thing. When I talked about the brain development, I may have mentioned that one of the circuits that doesn't develop well under conditions of adversity is the stress regulation circuitry. Mm-hmm. I mean, stress will happen in life, but our brain needs to be able to deal with it mm-hmm. by the time we become adults. The infant's brain cannot deal with stress. The adult's brain is meant to handle stress because life's going to bring stress. Now, in the addicts, that regulation does not develop. So when people are stressed, that's when they relapse. So usually when you ask what happened, what happened was stress happened and that person hadn't yet learned how to deal with stress. So now, the, so the default setting is to go back to the addictive escape from stress. And so we pick up whatever the behavior was we're doing and then we get to a point where it's arrested, whether it's alcohol or drugs, and we end up back in a detox and rehab, or it's a food thing, a food eating disorder, and we end up in a support group, whatever the case may be. How do we, how, how does an individual begin to pick themselves back up with that? You know, because in that place, in my experience, I mean, I, I've done it and then I've fallen again, but I know there's a lot of shame at that time self-loathing comes back up and there's stress of course so moving forward from that so the first thing is compassion Mm. so there's a phrase that i use called compassionate curiosity Mm. so you could say to yourself or let me let me well let me turn it around let's say you had a relapse and i could say to you why did you ever relapse or i could say to you Hey, Chris, well, let's inquire. Why do you think you had a relapse? Do you notice the difference between the two questions? Right. What's the difference? So you, you want to explore it with me instead of in an almost condemning way. Right. So the first way is not a question. It's an accusation. Right. The second way is just an exploration. So when somebody relapses, they need to approach themselves, not with the first, why did I do this? <clears throat> which is a statement that I'm an idiot, that I'm faulty, that I'm morally weak, that I'm unworthy. Instead with, huh, so here I am, committed to recovery, committed to sobriety, having suffered a lot as a result of my addictive behavior, and yet, despite all I learned in the past and my commitment, I relapsed. Huh. I wonder what happened. What is it that this relapse came along to teach me? There's, some, there's still something about myself that I don't know yet, that clearly some part of me needed to show me. Huh. Well, let's look at that. Now, isn't that an interesting question? And you know what? Once you ask it that way, the answers will start coming and the learning will happen because the reality is that each relapse can be seen as a learning experience. Not that one chooses it deliberately, oh, I'm going to relapse so I can learn. Don't worry about it. Life will bring that along when you need it. But once it does come along, it's a teaching experience. 
purely and simply. Uh, a teaching experience that'll help you recover more completely. By the way, the word recover, I never get tired of saying. What does that mean to recover something? To reclaim something that you've lost. To find it. And what is it that people recover when they recover? They find themselves. That's the disconnection and it's healing. And so the relapse comes along to help you find yourself. Yeah. Well, I just have two more questions if you have time for them. Sure. Okay. Um, the first one is regarding family members of those that are dealing with addiction and that are really lost in it. I've talked with so many parents uh, that have lost loved ones, you know, their children to it, or I've lost, of course, many friends. I know you've seen it time and again. I hate to ask for advice, but for those whom are watching a loved one, whether it's a brother or a son or daughter or wife, husband, whatever the case, someone you care about that's really lost in the grips of addiction, what can they do? And I say that understanding that when that person's so deep in addiction, you know, <laughs> they're, they're gone in a way. So, you know, I, I'm all right, speaking for myself, I know that there wasn't really anything for the most part my loved ones could do. I know they tried, but... No, you don't know that. Okay. What you do know is that what they tried didn't work. Okay. But you don't know that there's nothing they could have done. Okay. Okay. Uh, in one sense, you're 100% right. There's nothing they can directly do to change your mind. There's nothing they could directly do to change your mental status. There's no way that they could talk to you, advise you, cajole you, beg you, accuse you. No way. That, doesn't, that does not mean there's nothing they could have done. What if your family had come and said to you, if they had been able to come and say to you, Chris, here's how it is. We recognize that your addiction is not your primary problem. Your primary problem is that you don't allow to pain. And that pain is not yours alone. That pain has been carried in our family for generations. And we are part, as much part of that pain as you are. You're just the one who's soothing it with that particular behavior. In fact, you're the one whose uh, behavior shows us how much pain there is in our family. Thank you for showing that to me. Thank you for showing that to us. So we're going to stop working on you. Because we realize that we're as much part of it as you are. So we're going to take on the task of healing ourselves. We invite you to be there. If you feel like it. And if you're not ready, sweetheart, then just do what you need to do right now. But what if they said that to you? It would probably have been a, a much different reaction for me. As, it, as opposed to, they were pushing you, right? Right. Now, when somebody pushes on you, what's your response? You push back, or I, or I run away. Exactly. Now, I'm not blaming them. They did their best. That was their best. I'm just saying that it's not true that there's nothing families can do. Sure, sure. Families also have to decide. <clears throat> as addicts, like me, 
I lied to my wife for years about the money I was spending. I was ashamed of it. You know? The family has to decide, can I have this person in my life or can I not? If I'm going to have them in my life, there has to be certain rules, like they can't steal from me and so on. You know? But if I can have them in my life, I have to accept them exactly as they are, exactly where they're at. And 100% accept that right now they're using because they feel they need to. And I'm not going to nag them, cajole them, advise them. I'm not going to say a thing that they didn't ask me about. I'm just going to accept that that's who they are and I'm going to just love them. That's a rational decision to make. It's equally rational to say, you know what, it's too painful for me. I can't handle it. I can't see, I can't stand to see you do this to yourself. It's too stressful for me. I can't be with that. So I'm sorry, I can't be with you right now. I love you very much, but I can't be with you. That's legitimate too. What is completely nonsensical, and it's what, unfortunately, the, the pitfall for most families is to try and be in the addict's life and try and change them all the time. That's the one thing you cannot do. So, one or the other, accept or distance yourself lovingly, but don't try and stay in there with the intent of altering the other person. To the addict, that only signals one thing. They don't love me the way I am. So that's my advice to families. Um, and I do believe that addiction in a person, in any member of a family, can be a really healthy wake-up call for the whole family. Sure. Well, my last question is then in regards to the spiritual component of addiction and recovery. And, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people about this and some, you know, thank God, which their higher power, whatever they choose to call that for their recovery. Others, um, you know, are atheistic in their approach and, you know, take maybe a, uh, Noah Levine, for example, from uh, author of Refuge Recovery, takes more of a Buddhist atheistic approach and it works very well for him and many others. So, well, I accept that. I, I mean, I talked to, I'd love to talk to Noah about that one because <laughs> they talk about the Buddha self. Yes. And then the Buddha means, you know, the, the awakened one, you know. And, and so, isn't there a higher self there? I mean, there may not be gods and, and, and you know, angels, whatever, you know, but there certainly is a self that's higher and deeper and um, more real than the egoic little self that runs our lives. Mm. Wouldn't you agree with that, do you think, as far as you understand his thinking? <laughs> I don't know. I don't... I love Noah. I know he's more in the Theravada and old school yeah. tradition, and I know he's very uh, uh, Buddhist atheist. You know, he has the t-shirts. So... I, but the way you worded it, I don't see how he could disagree with it because that is a very accurate statement that you made absolutely. Yeah, so the higher self is simply that. It doesn't have to be. So, you know, now when the 12 steps talk about the God as we know him, the God is a very charged word. You know, it conjures up um, whatever anybody's life experiences are under the word God. So it could be a guy with a 
big beard and a heavy stick that he beats people over the head with, right. uh, condemns them to eternal damnation and hellfire, could be pure love, could be truth, uh, could be uh, multi-formed figures in animal and human shapes with supernatural powers. So when you say God and I say God, are we talking about the same concept? It's probably best to leave the word God out of it altogether as far as I'm concerned. And I know that a lot of people have trouble with uh, the 12 steps because of the word God is mentioned in it. Well, again, I think there's a different way to understand that word. And um, so to me, Spirituality doesn't have to do with religious belief. Right. Uh, I mean, religious belief, it can take the form of religious belief, but it doesn't have to. Uh, or on the other hand, you can have all kinds of religious beliefs and be completely non-spiritual. Yeah. Yeah. In how you live your life. We know that. So spirituality um, ultimately has to do with, do we recognize that we're more than this little isolated, agonized, egoic little self? Or is there something greater that inevitably is a part of us and we're a part of? And is that something we want to experience and manifest more in our lives? That to me is the spiritual question. And when it comes to addiction, one of the impacts of trauma is that we're a disconnection. And you know, when the world is hostile, that if an infant experiences or young child experiences, the world is indifferent. My parents aren't available to me. Or it's hostile. I'm being hurt. Then it's easy to believe that you're small, isolated, and very limited. So, so where there is that spiritual connection, instead there's this vast emptiness. And of course, addiction will try temporarily to make you forget that emptiness. So this is, a, which also means that the healing of addiction, for a lot of people, necessarily involves some kind of spiritual path, whether they recognize it that way or not. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time um, and your service and your work. It's like I said earlier, and, and I'm not just blowing smoke here, but it's been very deeply Im impactful in my life. And I know many, many others as well. So I thank you very much for that. And I thank you. My, for pleasure. my pleasure. And I thank you as well. I thank you for your um, real gentle vulnerability in this conversation. Your willingness to be open. And uh, I felt very, very much that you were present uh, uh, to this whole discussion. So, my pleasure. Thank you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, 
family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H E L P.com slash be here now.